So if you know me, uh, you know that I don't like surprises. It's just, I don't, generally, I just don't like unexpected things. If you were to, if you wanted to celebrate me, you would never throw me a surprise party. I would think that was a terrible thing. Surprises are like what happened last week with, the, with explosions and, uh, you know, fires and things. That's, that's, generally, surprises are bad. However, however, the, um, the one exception is uh, in good writing, a good book, and you're reading along, and there's that little plot twist or that little thing you weren't expecting that really kind of grabs you, or a, a movie, and you see it, and you say, oh, I was not expecting that. And that's a sign of really good writing or a good, a good story. And the scripture that was just read for us from the book of Romans is one of those moments where the apostle Paul, as he's writing a letter to the church in Rome, he throws a little twist in that they, his listeners may not have been those who read this letter originally may not have been expecting. and Because uh, he's been spending the, the first 11 chapters of this letter. He didn't write it in chapters. We've broken it up subsequently. But he's writing these 11 chapters. He's describing what God has done to rescue a world that was totally lost in sin, that rebelled against God, rebelled against his design and all his ways, and that he sent Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place as our substitute as a rescue for the world. And as we put our faith in that good news, the gospel, that, that God has rescued us through Jesus, that our, our lives are transformed and we want to worship God who has loved us and done that for us. No surprise. But the folks reading this letter, they were either Jewish, some of them would have been Jewish Christians. And the Jews knew, they understood worship. They knew that there was a temple where God's presence was known. There was a, a, a laws and rituals that they had to follow, offerings and sacrifices. There was uh, festival days. They had it all laid out. They knew what worship was. Also in the church in Rome, you'd have non-Jewish Gentile Christians who've come to faith in Jesus. And they also, the Gentiles had their own systems of worship. They had their own gods and temples and sacrifices and their own rituals. They had that. And, but So here's what would be shocking, is when, in this letter, Paul says that worship is much more than those kind of things. The shocking part is that worship is about a living body. And that's shocking, especially to these original readers, because they had a view of the human body that was very low. They, they would love to elevate spiritual things and really downplay the human body. And I think for us... Too. When we think about worship, we think about things that are happening in the spiritual realm, but not about my ordinary body. Because bodies are, you know, bodies are misshapen. They're, they break down. You know, they get doughy. They, they, the, our human bodies are, are not perfect. So a worship of a holy God, we want to focus on things that are more orderly and perfect, not just my, my body and my life. So this could be a tough concept for us as well, not just the original readers. Um, and, and there's aspects of worship that are easy for us to understand. When we all stand together and there's music and voices singing praise to God, that seems very obviously worship, and it is. But what about, if we, if we think about worship as a whole life, my living body kind of a thing, we realize that there's a lot more going on. It's a much broader definition. So I want to unpack that. What... What is this broad definition of worship that we see here in Romans 12, and how do we, how do we live into that together? So let's pray as we, as we do that this morning.
Father, we are gathered to worship you because you are worth you are worth it. You are worthy. You have accomplished everything we need. You have created us, but you, you loved us. You've restored us to yourself. And we want to worship and praise you. Help us to understand what that means. Lord, give us insight into your word and into your way that might truly form us as worshipers, true worshipers of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what is this broad vision for worship? And I want to start by noticing three things in this passage that that we learn about worship and whole life worship. The first is this. Worship is a response to God's mercy. Verse 1. Is in view of God's mercy, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's always in view of God's mercy. You know, here's this letter's being written. Here's all the things God has done for you. And then... Once you understand what God has done for you, you will want to respond in worship. Therefore, worship is not primarily about what I do. Worship is primarily about what God has done in my response to what God has done. Worship is not me trying to get God to do something or me getting, offering something to God so that he'll give me something. It's he's already given me everything, and I return to him and praise. And in that sense, not everybody is a worshiper. And you may have heard it said, and I may have even said it, you know, everybody worships something. In, in a sense, that's true. Everybody has something that they put uh, the, their greatest value on. But in this sense of worship, not everybody responds to God and what he's done in praise. Uh, this verse from Romans chapter 1. Paul says earlier in the same letter, he said, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave, him, nor gave thanks to him, but th- their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. He said, God has made his, himself known to the world, but some people do not worship. And they substitute other things, but genuine Worship responding to God doesn't exist for everybody because true worship is a response to to the true God. Second thing is that worship involves the living body. Look at the rest of verse 1 here. Offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Therefore, Worship is not just a spiritual experience. It's not just an abstracted thing that happens out there, but it's something that I experience in my own body. And so certainly it's more than an hour on Sunday. We understand that. And we need to erase the, the thought that, you know, God cares about, you know, my sacred time, but then there's my sort of secular time, there's my non-sacred time, and God cares more about the sacred than the other. If our living body can, can, is uh, involved in worshiping him, that involves everything that we do. That there is no, uh, we can't compartmentalize it. And so we, we worship in God's presence. Now, in, in the Old Testament, and, and certainly these Jewish believers, God's presence was most powerfully known and experienced at the temple. That's where God's glory resided. That's why they would go to the temple to worship. But since Jesus, he's fulfilled 
all of that. And he has given us his spirit. So God's spirit is everywhere we are. Where Everywhere your body is, God's spirit, because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 explains that. So we're in God's presence. Now we can worship in God's way. God's way was all about ritual and law and fulfilling all these things. Now Jesus fulfilled all those things for us. So there's only one law that's left unfulfilled. It's the law of love. Later in this letter, Romans 13, verse 8, Paul writes, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The way that we fulfill God's way and his law is by loving. And that's something that happens, it can happen anytime. Anytime you interact with somebody, you can uh, extend law, uh, love, which is fulfilling that law. And worship is always for God's glory. And so what brings glory to God? What brings glory to God is when we just trust him and put our faith in him and walk in his way and walk in righteousness. Uh, This verse, John chapter 17, Jesus said, I have brought you, he's praying to the Father. Jesus says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And and we've been given work too. As we complete the work of, of, of loving God and loving others and making disciples as we go, as we live this mission of life that, that, As we are obedient to that, that is an act of worship. It's for God's glory. God is glorified by these things. And and we've got, um, yeah, time together through the sermon series to really unpack what does that look like on Monday. I can kind of get what that, I understand that on the worship thing on Sunday, but what what do these things look like on Monday? And we're going to, that's what we're going to do. But we're going to respond to God's mercy. It's going to involve our living bodies. And thirdly, uh, Worship is a transformational force. Take a look at verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. So you see verse 1 and verse 2 connect the way that we worship and the way that we live and think and act are connected. And and Pastor Brian talked about this last week, that when we are in Christ, we are new. We are being made new. We are being transformed. So our old priorities are not our new priorities. And and that we we have a change in perspective, and that perspective change shapes us. And as we worship, and as we seek to worship in all we do, and as as our worship transforms our actions, then we can even more and more understand God's will. What does God desire of you? And people of faith, certainly, and even people who aren't of faith or the Christian faith, people want to know, if there's a God of the universe, what does he want me to do? How do I know what is right and good? And as people of faith, we ask, Lord, what what steps am I to take in my life? How are you guiding me? But sometimes we can fall into this almost magical thinking that, okay, I'm looking for a way to tap into God's will and he can um, give me signs and, and, and feelings. And, and certainly God could give you signs and feelings, but one of the great and beautiful ways that God guides, it's not so much how can God guide me, but who does God guide? God guides the righteous, Proverbs 11.3, the integrity of the upright guides them. And there's a number of verses that describe this. What I'm saying is the more that we live lives of obedience, lives that are in line with God's word, 
uh, lives that are righteous, we can understand God's guiding in deeper ways. Not because you're so good, not because you've earned it, not because, okay, I did good things, now God's going to give me this. No, it's, it's that as we see all of life live before God, we then have all of that experience to inform what God is doing and where God is leading. Think about it on the flip side. If you see worship as just one hour on Sunday, then that's the only sliver of worship and of, of understanding God's presence that you have. But if you understand that God's presence in my worship extends into everything I do, now you have the whole sphere of life to inform you of what God is doing and what he desires for your life. And our knowledge of God's will is increased, as it says here. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. And God's will is good. And it's pleasing and it's perfect. And if I, com- if I compartmentalize my faith, I only see a sliver of that. So this is what we want to do. We want to we move from the very obvious part of our worship on Sunday into the, what might be the less obvious part of your worship. I'll call it Monday worship. Where does this happen on Monday? But then when I, and we kind of end there, but I thought, is it really obvious what we do on Sunday that all that we do is worship? I mean, certainly the, when we're singing, yes, but what about like when you're given a sermon? Is this worship? So I want to just, I want to make sure we understand what we're doing here before we think about, you know, using that to propel us out. So let's do this. Do we have our order of worship? So this is basically what happens every week if you come here. Uh, no surprises here. But we have somebody, like today we had a call to worship. Sometimes it's just a person saying, hey, let's stand and worship together. Other times it's a verse of scripture. Other times it's a responsive reading like today. And that calls us, it it, it sets us to say, we are going to start our gathered worship together. In in times past, somebody might have blown a trumpet or a bell, you know, ring a bell, you know, anything that calls us to gather. And then we start right in song. We start right with praise, acknowledging God for who he is and what he's done and just singing praise to God. And then we have what I call life of the community, or what you might call announcement. Are announcements worship, worshipful? I mean, they don't always feel that way. I mean, today they did. Spot on. I, Roselle, I think I saw a dove, a dove descending behind you <laughs> while you were giving the announcements. And um, no, but uh, when we make announcements, it's actually an act of worship because it reminds us that we are a community and we are gathered, that my worship is not just this private thing, but God has called us to a spiritual family and we worship together and we seek God's will together. So we have programs and alpha dinners and we have things that we want you to know about in the life of our community so that we can participate together. So that really is an act of worship. Then we, we will say a prayer or sometimes a creed, often the Apostles' Creed or the Lord's Prayer. We're going to circle back to that in a second. Um, so skip that for now. Then we sing songs of praise again. I think that is more obvious when we do that. It's a very a great way to worship in song, lifting voices together. And then uh, scripture. Somebody reads scripture. Now, back to the first point. If our worship is a response to God's mercy, when we read God's word and describe what he's done, That is what we are responding to. So as God's word is read, as God's word is expounded or preached upon, that is going to push us to worship because we're hearing more of God's work, which is the basis of our worship. So it's all fueling worship. Uh, Then, okay, so the sermon. 
prayer. Then we pray, and again, that's a lot like our singing. Our songs are like a prayer, and then we also speak our prayer, where we are lifting to God our praises and, and our needs. It reminds us of his sovereignty, that we trust him with all these things, the needs of our community, the needs of our country and our world, uh, individual needs, and, and we lift these things to the Lord. That is an act of worship because it acknowledges who he is and what he's done. And then we have offering. And offering is also part of our worship. That is a very natural response to what God has done, to his word, to the good news, that we respond by giving of ourselves and giving of our possessions and sharing. And it's um, giving offerings has been part of the worship of God's people right from the beginning. Uh, sacrifices and offerings, and that's part of our worship. This summer, I had the, the privilege of visiting a number of churches, and I was at this one church. I won't say where I was, but... Uh, somebody stood up in front of the church and said, it came time for the offering. He said, okay, we're going to stop and we're going to take this morning's offering. And I about jumped out of my seat. I said, you're going to stop and you're going to take? How about we're going to continue and we're going to give? Because the offering is not about stopping and taking. It's about continuing the worship and it's about giving. And it is a beautiful, it's a perfectly good and beautiful response to God to do that. So that's part of our worship. And then we have a a closing song, again, more singing, and then uh, benediction, which is a benediction is just a word of blessing. And my hope is that in some way, the words of blessing spoken over God's people will propel us to leave this place on mission for him and and living lives that give him glory and give him honor um, that he is worth and that those, that we are a people who are sent. And that's, so everything that we do on Sunday is really to fuel worship. And I want to think in the weeks to come, what are the parallels between what we do here and where do I see it on Monday? Because it may not be so obvious. But I want to make sure we understood what we do. Uh, Two changes that we're going to do. Two, um, not huge changes, but we are going to move where we do our normal prayer. And in the next slide, I think you'll see, boom. Look, it's done. Um, we're going to move our, our pastoral prayer after, the, after we sing. And it's something we've been thinking about for quite some time. Our North Andover campus has been worshiping in that way, and it's been really fruitful and good. Uh, because when we sing praises, they're often very wide and broad, and we pray very wide prayers, and we pray together. And then when we focus on one passage of Scripture and then one sermon, it gets narrower and narrower, and we want to keep that focus. Sometimes it's hard to then transition to back to these big, broad prayer. So if we put the prayer there, it's going to make more sense to us. We'll experience it together. So you'll notice that in the weeks to come. So don't be surprised. We're not making a mistake. We actually have prayed and thought about these things together. So you'll notice that the second change that we're going to make is we're going to use a different version of the Apostles' Creed. And we say the Apostles' Creed together um, every so many weeks. And why why do we use creeds in worship? We use creeds because it unites us to other believers, not just around the world who are, who many Christians around the world say the Apostles' Creed as part of their worship, but Christians throughout time from the second century, we have evidence of this same Apostles' Creed, a shorter version of it, uh, that was spoken by Christians from the second century till today, and we are united to them in the same faith. I had an experience, a powerful experience this summer. When we were in London, 
my family, we went to the Evensong worship at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And they handed us a bulletin. We walked in, and this is what it said on the bulletin. It says, Christian worship has been offered to God on this site for over 1,400 years. By worshiping with us today, you become a part of this living tradition of prayer and thanksgiving. And you walk in, you think, 1,400 years, rhythms of prayer that now I'm part of. And when we say the Apostles' Creed, we, we see the history of the church, people proclaiming the same faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done, and that, he, that, that our faith is historic, that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, and he did rise again from the dead. You know, it, it's, it's not just ideas about God, but it is what he has accomplished, and that fuels our worship and connects us to one another and historically. That's why we say it. Why would we change it? And I would argue we're not changing the Apostles' Creed. You can't change. You can't. Uh, it's really an issue of translation, and the Apostles' Creed was not written by a council like other historic creeds of the church. Not to get too geeky on you, but the, if you've ever heard of the Nicene Creed, was written by a council of church leaders, and they were responding to a specific incident, and they wrote it down and signed it. The Athanasian Creed, same thing. It was written on a certain date by a certain group of people who very specific, and they signed it. The Apostles' Creed evolved over time not to respond not to react to uh, false teaching, but a way to provide positive teaching, to train new believers what it is that Christians believe. So it was a tool of the local church and therefore evolved over time because they, 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 as, as a way of teaching people. So the earliest version of the creed is called the, the Old Roman Creed or the Roman Symbol, the Roman Standard. It has a bunch of names, but it was essentially a short version of what we would call the Apostles' Creed. And again, that's the middle of the second century. The version that we use today really didn't come into its complete form until the seventh century. So you've got years of of it, different translation and and just different phrases kind of into that creed. But it's essentially the same creed. We we call it the um, Apostles' Creed. And we use it to teach one another, to declare our faith together. And we're not a creedal tradition in the sense that we have a... Congregational churches don't have a prayer book that has, like, this is the creed that we use. So we have some flexibility. But what I'm suggesting, and I'm going to show it to you in a second, is nothing that is unique. Other traditions, other churches, you know, use these phrases the way that I'm suggesting. But we want it to be clear and consistent so that it makes sense. So here we go. Ready to see it? All right, here we go. Okay. So this is, the, this is the, what we're going to be using moving forward. And there was a team of people who worked on this really hard, and I won't thank them in a second. But, um, and then the Board of Elders worked hard on this too. But we see, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And creator, a much stronger word, actually a more commonly used word for, in the Apostles' Creed for the act of God the Father. Uh, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, no change there, who was born of the Holy Spirit. Now, we, we've been saying Holy Ghost. We know what that means, but I never use the word Holy Ghost ever, except in the Apostles' Creed. If we talk about the third person of the Trinity, we always say Holy Spirit. Why don't we say Holy Spirit all the time? So it's just more consistent. Born of the Virgin Mary, lowercase c. Her name wasn't Virgin Mary. Her name was Mary. She was a virgin. It's more descriptive. That's more accurate. Um, 
This phrase, he descended to the dead, we had previously descended to hell. That's actually a later part of the creed. It's the most controversial part of the creed. This is where a lot of discussion happened. I can't get into all of it. This is the best way for us to say it together. That makes sense. And I commend you to a sermon I preached in 2016. I can get you the audio. I I spent a lot of time on that, so, but not today. For your benefit. Okay. Um, Sits at the right hand of God. Not sitteth. You are sitteth thing right now, but I don't use that word ever. So I'm going to say sits. From there instead of thence uh, to judge the living and the dead instead of the quick and the dead. Um, Next slide. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Again, not ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost, right? It's the same thing. Um, the Holy Christian Church, this, this one created the most confusion. We say the Holy Catholic Church, and every time we did it, somebody would come up to me and say, is this a Catholic church? Because I thought you were a congregational church. I said, well, Catholic, the word Catholic means universal, so we are all part of the one universal Christian church. Everybody who puts their faith in Christ is part of this one universal. means universal. So we mean all of the Christians everywhere, the Holy Christian Church. But we're not big C, Roman Catholic, with the Pope and all that stuff. I said, oh, okay, I was just confused. So then the next time we do it, another person comes up. Are you a Catholic church? Because I thought this was not a Catholic church. It's like, okay, holy Christian church. It's going to make, uh, it's going to be a lot easier for people to not be distracted when we say this together. Uh, the fellowship of all the saints as opposed to communion of saints better reflects the original meaning of the creed, meaning that we are uh, in fellowship with, with all saints, those who have gone before us and those who live today. And, and then the rest is the same. So those are not major changes. And then, again, it's, Other churches are doing the same. Um, Other traditions are using the same phraseology. We're not being cute or innovative here. We're not trying to take something traditional and make it hip, right? We're just trying to make it clear. And and so when next time we use that in worship, you will notice that. Um, I want to thank Mac McSweeney, Dan Murphy, Tim Pierce, Eric Runge, Pastor Brian, and Dave Medeiros, who uh, were a team of theologically astute folks who did first suggestions, and then the board did a lot of work on it, and, and it's, it's been taking a number of months uh, working on that, but we're happy to be doing this. Okay, that was a major tangent. Okay, we're going to bring it back. In conclusion, we want to make, I want to, then the reason I, I shared that was I want Sunday morning to make sense because it's so that we understand worship here so that it can fuel us to understand worship out there. If I can understand what prayer is here, I can look for it out there and understand when prayer is happening. If I sing a song here, I might understand something of uh, what sings out there, praise to God. What, what uh, scripture on Sunday, what out there? Maybe I'm reading my Bible. That's obviously scripture out there. But where do I see God's word or the truth of God's word played out in the world around me? And we're just going to open ourselves to live whole life worship. May you see it every day. May you live a life of worship. May you live as a living sacrifice to God, pleasing to him. Uh, may it glorify God. He is worthy of our praise. He is good. He is merciful. Praise the Lord. Amen.